It's a true pleasure for us at the Pratt to welcome the Emmy Award-winning journalist admired by so many from the amazing stories he reports on the CBS Evening News and 60 Minutes. And tonight we'll hear his personal story that will definitely move you. So we're excited to welcome him to his hometown of Baltimore. Byron's new book, Step Out on Nothing, is a touching and inspiring story of his remarkable journey from Baltimore to the world of network news. But most of all, it spotlights and focuses on a problem millions of Americans are dealing and living with, illiteracy. I learned from Byron's piece this past weekend on CBS Sunday Morning that one in seven adults in this country is illiterate, and that's about 30 million Americans. And I know that here in Baltimore, 38% of our population is functionally illiterate. Byron's story brings it back home to Baltimore, where he grew up and attended school. And that's why it's very important to showcase the importance of the Pratt and other organizations that fight illiteracy in the city and across the nation. So we are honored to have a real role model and a person here who shows the importance of reading and education. Thank you for being with us tonight. Now, we're all very um, eager to hear from our special guest tonight, and I just wanted to take, and I learned, uh, this is what you call commercial? Uh, to, to pick up a copy of our Compass, our newsletter, and to check out our website, uh, prattlibrary.org. We are um, on Facebook, MySpace, and we tweet. <laughs> and we're tweeting, Roswell is tweeting right now. But now to introduce our special guest tonight is award-winning journalist from the CBS affiliate here in Baltimore, WJZ. She's a graduate of Northwestern University, and her journalism career has brought her from Mobile, Alabama, to Dublin, Ireland. So please welcome to the Pratt Library, WJZ's Gigi Barnett. Thank you, Dr. Hayden. I love her. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. It is an honor to be here with you tonight. I just jumped at the chance to introduce Mr. Byron Pitts this today. Uh, it was a great opportunity, and I have a reason why. He doesn't, I don't know if he would remember this, but in the, I want to say, fall of 1995, Byron Pitts worked at WSB-TV, and he was one of their lead reporters, and he was never in the newsroom, and the reason that I know that is because I was a lowly intern <laughs> at WSB in Atlanta. He was always gone, and some people would say, well, he was always gone from the newsroom? I mean, that's not a good reporter, but actually it is the mark of an excellent reporter, because an excellent reporter is always on their beat, always digging and searching for the news, and he was never in the newsroom. But he did say some things to me, and he said, you know what? You always, in your stories, you want to take the viewer there. No matter where you are, no matter what story you're doing, take the viewer there. And I remember that and that is what I try to do here at WSB, excuse me, WJZ television. Wow, WSB, WJZ, that might be, it rhymes, so that might be full circle, right? 
So um, let me just tell you a little bit about Mr. Byron Pitts. Um, after hearing about his book, Step Out on Nothing and Learning His Astonishing Story, you tonight will admire him as well, and he will inspire you also. His amazing story of overcoming childhood obstacles here in Baltimore and achieving enormous success is a story every child, teen, parent, teacher, and student needs to hear in this city. Byron Pitts was born in Baltimore and almost had everything going against him. His parents divorced when he was 12. His mother had to work not one, but two jobs just to make ends meet. And he had to struggle with a debilitating stutter until the age of 20. Also, Byron was carrying a secret that no one else knew, and that was he was functionally illiterate. In an interview last week on the CBS Early Show here on WJZ's O&O station, we saw him tell Harry Smith how important surrounding yourself with key people who step out on nothing on your behalf can encourage you and make a difference in your life. Some of those people in his life, as we mentioned, include his mother, a college roommate, friends, and professors. Byron Pitts turned his childhood around. He is currently the chief national correspondent for the CBS Evening News with Katie Couric and a contributing correspondent to 60 Minutes. Along the way, he has earned... Yes. Along the way, he has earned countless awards, including a national Emmy for his courage of the September 11th attacks. He has taken us to the front lines of tragedy, war, and politics, still taking the viewer there. From the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina to the war in Afghanistan to the Elian Gonzalez story, Byron Pitts reports the news and has earned our respect and our admiration along the way. After you read his book and hear him tonight, you will be inspired. So please, welcome home to Charm City, Baltimore's native son, CBS News' Byron Pitts. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. How are you doing, sir? Thank you. Uh, we had, a, we had a, a private reception earlier for, for some people that I'm especially close to, and I thought I'd gotten all of my tears out then. And, but if you folk keep acting like that, I may do some more crying tonight. Um, I've been to a lot of places uh, in my professional life. I've been to 37 countries for CBS News, and I've interviewed the last, uh, whether in office or out of office, the last five presidents of the United States. Uh, I've seen a few things. But uh, I say with great conviction... It is good to be home. I apologize. We started a bit late. Part of it was my fault because there's so many faces in, in, in the audience of people who I grew up with, from my church at New Shiloh Baptist Church, the old neighborhood, right on, uh, the old neighborhood on East Federal Street, uh, the neighborhood uh, we moved to after my parents split up, uh, Truesdale Lane. Uh, my, my brothers from Archbishop Curley High School, my beloved high school, uh, they're here, coaches, teachers. And I'll talk about them in a bit later. Uh, my family's here. Uh, my immediate family's here. My wife and our son is here. Uh, I'm glad they came down with me. Uh, my mom is here. Uh, I have aunts. My brother and sister are here. Uh, my dad is also here. Thanks, Dad, for coming out. Appreciate it. 
So all the people who, uh, basically, all the people who got me to 60 Minutes are in this room. Uh, and I want to say thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, one, of the, one, of the, one of the things I say early on in the book is how when I did my first studio open for, for 60 Minutes, and that can be a tough crowd. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but, but Andy Rooney can be cantankerous sometimes. He can be. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and Mike Wallace doesn't just throw bad people up against the wall. He'll throw a young reporter up against the wall uh, to make a point. But the first time I sat in the chair, uh, the chair at CBS, to do my first studio open for 60 Minutes, it was an emotional time for me. Uh, and I, I talk about that in the book, that I flash back certainly to my family and their struggles to get me there. My late grandmother, who passed away a few years ago. Uh, my aunt is also here from North Carolina. Hey, honey. Um, and in that moment, uh, before, you know, in between saying, I'm Byron Pitts. Who knew it was so hard to say your own name? I, it, it took 10 tries to do that. But as I sat in that chair for the first time, uh, I thought about my family. Uh, I thought about my friends, uh, my extended family in Baltimore. And I thought, what a glorious journey. How blessed I've been. Uh, a kid from East Baltimore, grew up on the 2700 block of Federal Street off Edison Highway, uh, went to uh, Truesdale Lane when my parents split up. And I remember my freshman year at Curley, uh, the principal at the time, he says, Curley is a place uh, where blue-collar boys can have white-collar dreams. And I thought, yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, and so Step Out of Nothing uh, covers that journey. So what I'd like to do is talk for just a few minutes about the book, to read you an excerpt and then open the floor uh, to questions so we can have a conversation. Uh, because again, people in this room know me. I mean, there's some folk in this room who know me as Pickle. That was my nickname when he's Federal Street. Uh, there are some folk who know me as Pitts. Uh, it's Coach Patriot, my high school football coach at Curley would call me. Actually, it was Goddammit Pitts is what he, how I usually, <laughs> I usually call me. But, but, he said it, but he said it with chewing tobacco in his teeth and love in his heart. Uh, Step Out of Nothing is uh, the story of a journey. A kid from East Baltimore who didn't learn to read until he was 12, studied until he was 20, and now he works for the most revered program in the history of broadcast news, and that's 60 Minutes. Uh, some people would say that is an improbable journey. Uh, but I know it was a journey made possible by a variety of people. I'm not one of those people who subscribes to the bootstrap philosophy. I did not get where I am today by myself. I was blessed by a number of people who lifted me up, uh, who allowed me to hold on to their shoelaces and uh, to get me to where I am now. And so many of those people are in this room, and I want to thank, I'll thank some of you uh, from the stage. I want to thank all of you individually before the night's over with. Uh, one of those people, for instance, uh, he's here. His name is uh, James Mack. Coach, raise your hand if you don't mind. Yeah, thank you. You can stand up. Coach is clean, ain't he? Thank you. Uh, Coach was one, one of those people who uh, I met uh, when I was young. And he was one of the great role models in my life. One of the sayings that I have now, when I usually when I, when I greet people, I say, hey, when I meet young people, and I say, I met the young people tonight from St. Francis uh, High School. I said, hey, champ, how you doing? And because whenever Coach Mack would say hello to me, it was always, hey, champ. He says, son, there are two kinds of people in this world. There are champs and there are chumps. <laughs> and you look like a champ to me. 
And so even though he was older, he showed a child respect. And it was through his example and the example of so many other people, I learned the power and the importance of being respectful of people. So, Coach, thank you so much. I appreciate it. He's here with his lovely wife and their daughters. Thank you all so much. Thank you for sharing, Coach, because I think uh, my testimony about Coach Mack, there are a number of now men uh, across the city and across the country who owe uh, much of their success and where they are to the values and, and, and honorable things that, uh, that Coach Mack taught us. Now, Coach, Coach Patriot was one of the first people who taught me the, the value and the beauty of profanity. <laughs> uh, but, but, but Coach Mack wasn't too far behind him. He's also Deacon James Mack from our church in Charlotte Baptist Church. Step out on nothing. Uh, I lay out in the book, I want it to be clear to the reader who I am, whose I am, and where I come from. Uh, people who sometimes see me on, on the CBS Evening News and now see me on 60 Minutes, watched by 18 to 25 million people every Sunday at 7 o'clock. Wow, that's a big number. <laughs> so I wanted those people who only know that Byron Pitts to not be confused about who I am or where I come from. Uh, anyone who talks to me more than 10 seconds knows that I'm Clarice Pitts's youngest boy that was born and raised in East Baltimore, and I'm proud of where, where I'm from, and that this is a city of great people. Uh, I grew up in a working-class neighborhood. My parents, uh, both hardworking people, while they were married, after they split up, hardworking people. My brother and sister, hardworking people. Uh, the, the men who taught me at Archbishop Curley High School, hardworking people. One of my dearest friends from high school, his name is Joseph Stombrowski. Certainly, Joe was the first Polish person I ever met, and I would suspect I was the first brother he had ever met. Uh, for the record, if anyone's interested, his mama makes the best pot roast in West Baltimore. She was kind enough to always invite me uh, to their table and treat me like family. And that's the great thing about a place like Baltimore, that oftentimes, despite what's often said about our great city in the press, this is a, a community of, of wonderful, hardworking, uh, mostly law-abiding people, and it's, it's an honor to be from this, from this city. I said mostly. I mean, we got a couple. <laughs> we got, we got, I, none in this room, certainly, but we all know, we all got a couple of those in our family, right? We all got a couple knuckleheads somewhere extended family. Uh, step out of nothing. This is from one of the earlier chapters. Outsiders knew my hometown as just Baltimore, but if you grew up there, there were actually two Baltimores, East Baltimore and West Baltimore. And the side of the city you lived on said as much about you as your last name or your parents' income. East Baltimore was predominantly blue-collar, made up mostly of cement, ethnic neighborhoods, and, and tough-minded people. Most people I knew worked with their hands and worked hard for their money. You love family, your faith, the Colts, and the Orioles. In 1969, my world centered on the 2700 block of East Federal Street, 10 blocks of red brick houses, trimmed with aluminum siding, and decent people kept their furniture covered in plastic. <laughs> each, house, each house had a, a patch of grass out front. To call a lawn would be too generous. The yards on East Federal Street were narrow and long, like the hood of the Buick Electric 225 my father drove. Those in the know called that model car deuce and a quarter. <laughs> Say amen, somebody. Ours was a neighborhood on the shy side of working class. Like I said, my father was a meat cutter at the local meat market. 
My mother was a seamstress at the London Fog Coke factory. My sister was about to graduate from high school. Big hair, bigger personality. I idolized her. My brother was 16. We had the typical big brother, little brother relationship. We hated each other. <laughs> born William McLaurin, we've, born William McLaurin, we've always called him Mac, as in McLaurin, but it could have stood for Mac Truck. <laughs> Not surprisingly, he grew up to become a truck driver. Even as a boy, he was built like a man, stronger than most, with a quiet demeanor that shouted, fool with me at your own risk. <laughs> he and Clarice were not blood relatives. However, they always shared a fighter's heart. They would always have each other. My nickname in the neighborhood was Pickle. I despised that name, but it seemed to fit. You know the big kid in the neighborhood? That wasn't me. I was thin as a coat rack, my head shaped like a rump roast covered with freckles. We were a Pepsi family, but my glasses resembled Coke bottles. <laughs> I was shy out of necessity. But whatever my life lacked in 1969, football filled the void. I loved Johnny Unitas, John Mackey, and the Baltimore Colts. I never actually went to a game. I guess we couldn't afford it. But no kid in the stands ever adored that team more than I did. An early chapter from Step Out on Nothing. Thank you. Also in the book, I talk about uh, my family struggle and my struggle with illiteracy because it was a family struggle. Uh, my poor brother, was my sister went off to college, was tortured night after night helping me do my homework. I was never sure if he was so faithful to help me do my homework because he loved me so much or he was so afraid of my mother. <laughs> I suspect it was some of both. But it was a family struggle. Uh, I was diagnosed in elementary school as being... We were actually taking, I was tested to see why I was failing math. I was never a great student in elementary school. Uh, wasn't a particularly great student by the time I got to Curley. You know, Joe likes to tell, my dear friend Joe Stombrowski likes to tell the story. Then freshman year in high school at Curley, I was in remedial reading and math. I was in the same class in the 10th grade, but eventually, but, but eventually I improved. But when I was in elementary school, I began to fail in math. And I, I was raised at that time, my parents were together. Uh, our reputation was a hard-working, God-fearing family. Uh, the teachers knew that uh, Clary's Pitts especially would, forgive my French, whoop my ass if I stepped out of line. <laughs> so I was kind of passed along. I was a picture reader. Uh, I could recognize the words in their context, and I was blessed with a good memory. So after I would torture Mac for an evening over the kitchen table to help me with my homework, I would go to class the next day having memorized a section that I'm going to have to read that next day in class. One of the things when one is ashamed of something, when one has that kind of pain, you learn to hide it. And I became good at hiding those things. Well, finally, I was tested. Uh, I was struggling in math. I was failing math. And I took a test, and they discovered my issue wasn't that I couldn't do math. The issue was I couldn't read the directions to do the math. The first therapist, an early therapist, suggested to my parents that I might be mentally retarded that perhaps I should be institutionalized. Uh, my parents, neither at that time had college degrees, but they knew enough not to accept that as an answer. My mama says, said, well, no, I don't think that's right. Saw another therapist. And that therapist said, well, you know, we're not sure what Byron's issues are, 
But if you wait until he's 15 and bring him back, maybe we can help him then. My mama said, no, that doesn't sound right. Because if you wait until he's 15, he'll be dead or in prison. He needs help now. And she had the courage of her faith uh, to hang in there and to, and to keep pushing. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about faith, and I'd like to open up for questions. Uh, now, I don't talk about my faith a great deal when I'm on television for the CBS Evening News, but I'm with family tonight, so I can talk a little bit about my faith. Because it seems to me when I tell the story of my journey and the story of this book, Step Out on Nothing, which is a title of a sermon at my church, it is talking about stepping out on faith, stepping out on things that you don't see necessarily, things that you can't hold on to, things that some people may perceive as nothing, but you know it is your faith that sustains you, that keeps you going. My mother, uh, for most of her life, uh, has worn a mustard seed around her neck uh, encased in a clear plastic ball. She's upgraded now in retirement. Now it's a cross <laughs> that has a mustard seed inside. But that mustard seed relates to Scripture. Uh, in Matthew it says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say that mountain, mountain move from here to there, and it will move. I am a witness to the power of that kind of mountain-moving faith. Certainly, I saw it in my mother. I saw it in, in men like Coach Mack. I saw it in Father Bart. Father Bart, if you could stand up for a second. Father Bart. Hey. Father, Father Bart was my, one of my high school counselors, was my high school counselor, Curly. And when I first went into his office, there, there are several pages devoted to Father Bart. And uh, he sat me down and said, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, well, you know, despite what Coach Patry says, I want to play pro football someday. <laughs> and he smiled and said, well, that's nice. But let's talk about your plan for your education. And he sat me down, and we took, it was supposed to be a 20-minute session, and we were there for about two hours. And he mapped out what I had to do academically to get where I was, a kid who was in remedial reading and math, to get from there to a good college. I remember he opened up a book. Uh, that kids see that the young people from St. St. Francis, I'm sure, have looked through with all the universities and colleges in the country. And he opened up randomly. And I think he ended up pointing to an Ivy League school in this book. And he, he explained to me all the things I had to do to get there. Now, he didn't limit me. He didn't limit my dreams, my potential by saying, well, where you are right now, you can't get to a Harvard or Yale or, or Princeton. He didn't do that. He encouraged me. He stepped out on nothing to help me. Thank you, Father. I, uh, in, the, in the book, I describe Father Bart that for me, as, as a high school freshman, I was, I guess, 14 years old, maybe 13, 14 years old. I describe Father Bart as, to me, he was what Jesus would look like. And I said that not because of the color of his skin, but by the gait in his walk, the way he carried himself, the kindness in which he treated me and the respect he gave me and my classmates. Um, so thank you again, Father Barr, for your example. So the book talks about as much about me as about the wonderful people in my life who intervened uh, to help me out. I, I may read a bit of the book later, but I want to say one other quick story, uh, and this relates to, to, uh, to Coach Mack again. Uh, when I was about 12 years old, we, we all see stories in the news about young people who are bullied, and we often know how those stories end in violence that harms so many lives. Because no one 
either saw the signs or no one paid attention to the signs. Well, when I was in elementary school, middle school, thereabouts, I was bullied. I was one of those kids who had that anger inside, uh, the shame I felt with words like stupid and slow that followed me around school. And so I guess I had self-esteem issues before I knew what the word meant. But there was a bully at, uh, at my school who tortured me. And I made up in my mind one day I was going to deal with that bully. And so I went to the corner store. I was with uh, Vic Carter, who is, I, I call Vic, Vic Carter's my anchor man. He is, uh, y'all in Baltimore have had him for about, I guess, how many years? 15 years. I've known him for 20. I knew him back in the day. Uh, but Vic uh, was kind enough to come out with, with the cameraman, and, and we went back to the old neighborhood uh, in East Baltimore, and, and some of the same folk I grew up with are still there. And uh, I remember we, we walked past a building that's a house that was a store when I was a boy. And I went in that store and bought a pocket knife. Never told my mom this story. Never told my brother or sister this story. But I bought a, a pocket knife because that boy disrespected me at school, and I was going to deal with him the next day. Whenever I do stories now about young people who've gone the wrong way, I don't judge them. I often say, there before the grace of God go I. So I bought this knife, and this was back in the day when people talked, when neighbors talked, when parents were involved in the lives of children besides their own children. Folks like the Stombrowski. Mrs. Stombrowski would pick me up from school every single day that I was in high school. She'd blow a horn. My mama would wake me up on time every day. But it never failed. Mrs. Nebrowski had to blow her horn 15 times <laughs> before I came outside. But she always showed up. She was always kind. But getting back to the, to the knife story, I bought this knife because I was going to deal with this person, deal with it the way a, a child thought they might deal with an adult situation. I bought this knife. Somehow, Coach Mack got wind of that I had this knife. So on my way to school, I had the knife in my uh, backpack, because I was going to deal with that boy that day. I was tired of being bullied, tired of having my older brother fight my battles. My sister sometimes fighting my battles. <laughs> so as I'm walking down the street, Coach Mack appears from, from no place. Now, he, now, you know, he has to be at work, but I guess he left his house a little early that day because he knew that there was a young person at risk. He didn't call Channel 13, didn't call, didn't make a big deal out of it. But he showed up and he met me on the street and said, Hey, champ, how you doing? Hey, Coach, good morning, how you doing? So what's going on? Small conversation. Eventually, he got around to what he was there to talk to me about. And he said, so uh, let me see the knife. And I explained to Coach my situation. Again, even in this moment, this was an adult who showed a child kindness and respect. He didn't, he didn't instantly judge me or criticize me. Actually, I think he was trying to trick me into telling him what was going on. <laughs> and so Coach said, okay, let me, let me see the knife. In my mind, I'm thinking, Coach, uh, Coach is a man. He understands a man's dilemma. So he says, okay, explain to me now what you're going to do with this knife. And I tell him. He says, well, have you tested it out yet? I said, no, sir. He says, well, well son, a knife, you know, when you're cutting the meat, it might get stuck. And he gives me this very detailed, complicated, scientific explanation as to what was going on. He says, so tell you what. So he opens up his jacket. He says, well, why don't you try it on me? Test it out on me first. I said, coach, I can't do that. He said, why not? Said, come on, come on, take, try it, try it. Let me see what you got. I said, coach, I can't do that. I love you. I love you like a father. And I've never forgotten what he said. He said, son, that's exactly right. You have to love yourself enough not to do anything stupid. And who knows what would have happened if Coach Mack hadn't taken time out of his day and his family to stop and intervene in my life and I'd made it to uh, school that day and dealt with that bully. 
So Step Out of Nothing talks about that, about the wonderful people I've been blessed to know, some big shots, some not so big shots, who were kind enough to, to, give, a, to give of themselves and give to me. I'd like to open it up for questions, and then I'll read you uh, one or two more sections uh, if time permits. Uh, any questions at this point, please? You know, not, not one thing in particular. I think it was a collection of things. Uh, one of the things that, that my wife and I are doing with, with the book, Step Out of Nothing, is that we're donating a, do, donating a penny a book to the National Center for Family Literacy because it's something, it is, is a, a commitment that my wife and I hold dear, the value of education, the value of words. And people would say, well, it's just a penny. What's a penny going to do? And I think, you know, Coach Mack took about 15 minutes out of his day to change the direction of a boy's life. Father Bart was required to give me 20 minutes, and he gave me two hours. Small gestures, one could argue, they made a huge, huge difference. So the symbolism I think my wife and I wanted with the Penny a Book campaign is that people would know that when you buy the book, and I hope all of you buy the book and buy many books and tell your friends to buy many more books. <laughs> That's my commercial. Uh, that it speaks to how so many there, so there is no one moment, but a collection of moments from my time at St. Catherine. Sister Clarice, are you here? Could you stand up for a second? Sister Clarice was my third grade teacher at St. Catherine's. And as you've all saw, she is a beautiful woman. But I'm here to tell you, when I was in the third grade, she was sure enough fine. I had my original crush on Sister Clarice. Her first name, as it happens, is my mother's first name. So Clarice is a good name, is a strong name. The woman of faith have that name. So thank you so much, Sister Clarice. So I hope that answers your question. It was a collection of people. Was it, I mean, there were no aha moments where things turned to run. It was, it was a steady drumbeat of moments. It was, you know, my mother's love and her discipline. Um, it was, and even, even the things you learn uh, out of pain. Uh, divorce is a major issue in our country. And I certainly know as a child the impact they had on my life and the anger that caused in me. Uh, but fortunately, I was blessed with so many people who, who allowed, who respected the anger that I had and helped me to direct it, to be focused about it. So I am grateful for all moments, the good moments and the bad moments. Other questions? There are some hands down here. Oh, yes, sir. How are you doing? Hey, brother. I have no idea that you were Baltimore. It my mind. I worked really hard to get rid of my Baltimore accent, so I appreciate that. Of all the political figures you've interviewed, who would you consider to be the most astute politician? That's a great question. Yeah, it's off-the-record conversation, right, amongst family? Well, I, I will say respectfully, uh, it wasn't uh, George W. Bush, I would say. I don't think it wasn't. Uh, certainly a man with, with his strengths. I, I don't mean to disparage him at all, because I certainly know I am a man with limitations, so I'm respectful. I, I recognize someone else with their own limitations. Uh, I, I would, you know, I would say, uh, it, it's interesting, I would say sort of two answers. One, I would say certainly President Clinton, the ability to connect with people, all kinds of people, 
Uh, President Obama has some of those qualities. Uh, Mayor Schaefer, those of us who remember Mayor Schaefer in Baltimore. I remember this was a guy, and I was a boy, couldn't vote, uh, wasn't close to voting age, but when I would see him out and about with, with my, my mother or my dad, he would say hello, and he, he was able, that, that ability, it seems to me the great politicians on the local, national level have the capacity to connect with people one-on-one uh, -on -one and to make you feel special in, in that moment. So, yeah, I would, give, I would give some props to Mayor Schaefer. Other questions? Yes, ma'am. In Baltimore in 1968, mm -hmm. there was a bus drive. Mm. There, was a, there was a major bus drive, and that was the year um, I started college. And I was able to get to Morgan for my 8 o'clock class because Ms. Clarence Pitts would come down Milton Avenue and make that turn on North Avenue yeah. and pick up my girlfriend there. Yeah. She was also in college at the same time. Yeah. And I would like for you to share with us um, your feelings about when your mom was in college. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Someone else like family. Your mama was like my mama. Hey, mama. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my mother, uh, there is a book to be written purely about my mother. Uh, and that she is symbolic, I think, of all the, the wonderful women I've known in my life. Uh, the wonderful women I had the, the pleasure to get to know growing up in Baltimore. And I'm sure my mama is like so many of the mothers who raised the people in this room. Uh, undying faith in her children. Uh, bordering on obsession being obsessive about her love and belief in her kids. Uh, my mother raised us with great clarity. Uh, there are always two rules in my mama's house. Rule number one, Clarice makes the rules. <laughs> rule number two, you will follow the rules. Someone I remember once when I thought, you know, I see some of the young faces in here, some of the, some of the young boys, and I look at you and I see myself when I was your age. And I remember when I, I got into probably high school, and some of, my, some of my brothers at Curly, they got allowances. So I went home. I said, Mama, well, I, you know, I'm a Curly man now. And the, some of my friends at Curly get allowances for taking the trash out, allowances for washing the car, allowances for just being good people. I think it's time <laughs> that I get an allowance. So I think my, my mother went to the same school that Coach Patriot and, uh, and that... Uh, Deacon Mack and some other folks went to, and she said, God damn it, boy. I allow you to eat here every day. I allow you to get in a bed every day. I allow you to put the clothes on that I bought. That's your allowance. Um, my mother uh, is one of, is, is my original role model. Uh, I've said it once and I'll say it again, a tremendous faith in God. Uh, I consider myself an optimistic man, and it was the optimism I learned in my mother's knee. Uh, life was not always kind to my mother. And, and, and certainly the, the, the same can be said of many of the, the women and men in, in this room of a certain generation. But she never let the difficulties of the day of her life impact the way she raised her children and the optimistic spirit she gave us. I can remember when we, were, when we were younger, before my sister went off to college, and then when she would come home from school, uh, my mother would often invite us into her bedroom, and we would sit on the corner of her bed, and she would share her own struggles uh, to let us know that while I was struggling with reading, Mac was struggling with something else, and Sandra was struggling with something else, that she, as a child of God, had her own struggles. 
but that she assured us that she'd be okay and that we would be okay. Uh, a wonderful, wonderful uh, role model, her optimistic spirit, uh, and, and also her, her generous spirit, as, as you mentioned. Despite my mother working jobs to take care of her family, uh, going back to college, uh, working a full-time job and making hats on the side to make extra money, she would still find time to help other people. And one of the early examples that she gave to us, she never talked about it, but we saw uh, in her spirit, this notion that we are to help each other. Uh, I saw in action something that my grandmother always said. My grandmother would always say, the only way God can give you more is if you open up your arms and give away what you have. And uh, my mother never used those words, but she lived those words. Uh, people ask me sometimes now that I, um, how is it that I can go to difficult places? And uh, For instance, I'll tell you an inside story. Today I was in New York. I had to go to New York for a screening of a 60 Minutes piece uh, that's going to come up soon. Uh, I'll, I'll cheat since we're off the record and we're t I'm talking to family. It's a profile on Tyler Perry, the movie director. I've been working. It'll be on in a couple of weeks, so tune in. <laughs> that's after you buy the book and make sure the friends have bought the book and you've read the book. So I go, I go to New York for my screening. It's where you sit in, this, in the hallowed halls of 60 Minutes, and they turn the lights down in a small theater, and you look at the piece with the uh, executive producer. The lights come on, and you know, we're waiting to hear what he says about this piece we worked on for over a year, because you know, I'm at 60 Minutes now, so I'm, you know, I'm the man. And he said, uh, I can't share with you all that he said, because he went to the same school that Coach Mack and <laughs> Coach Patry and my mother went to. But basically, he gave us a tongue lashing about the piece and what he expected uh, for a 60 minutes piece to look at when it goes on television. So he leaves the room, and I'm left with my producer, associate producer, my assistant, and a few other a researcher. And they look like they just lost their families. They are just, I mean, blood on the floor. They are just white as ghosts. And they said, oh, oh, Byron, no, we're so sorry for letting you down. So what do you think? I said, man, that was awesome. That was awesome. I mean, he spoke with such clarity about what he wants. I mean, it reminded me of halftime of a high school football game where a coach would get in our butts and, and you just, you know, you, you would just listen and nod your head and go out and do what you have to do. So I wasn't discouraged at all. He said, but the things he said, the language he used, you weren't bothered by that. I mean, you're a professional man. You're at the top of your game. You're a 60 minutes correspondent. I'm like, child. If you were a fly on the wall in my mama's house, <laughs> what he said today, <laughs> I'm okay with that. I like you in speaking about my mother. And again, I, I want to make the point that, that my mother was many things. Incredibly optimistic, uh, kind enough to bring the right people into our lives, uh, demanding. Uh, I always say that my mother treated us the same hand in which she would spank us. Uh, she would also embrace us and encourage us. So her love was equal uh, to her discipline. But be clear about my mother's discipline. Uh, this is a letter. You'll see that there, there's a chapter uh, in the book called Letters from Home. To make the point about how when the, when the young lady in the back asked me about a key moment, a turning point for me, I want to make the point there were a series of moments. And one of those moments... Uh, was when I was in college. I was a student at Ohio Wesleyan University. Uh, Coach Patriot helped me get there, and I think he showed some other players tape and said it was me that helped me. So thank you, Coach. I appreciate that, to get into Ohio Wesleyan. And uh, my mother, 
because this is before the young people. This is before Twitter and Facebook and the Internet. And folk made phone calls, and phone calls were expensive in our household. There weren't a whole lot of phone calls, but stamps were still cheap. And so Mama would send, she wrote me a letter every week that I was in college. Not every other week, not every now and then, but every week I could expect a letter from my mother in college. I was jealous for a while. One of my roommates in college would get a letter from his father every now and then with a check inside. <laughs> Clary's never sent a check. <laughs> she would send the letter uh, with an index card with a scripture, a quotation from Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking, to encourage me. So when Mama would send her letters, she would send three kinds of letters. If the letter arrived in, in black ink, it meant all was fine. She's going to talk about what's going on in her life, talk about Miss Callum, talk about what's going on back in the neighborhood, talk about the latest gossip at New Shiloh, the church I grew up in. And that was fine, friendly, sweet letter. And I would distribute my letters to classmates uh, from parts of the country, kids from, like, well-heeled communities. Like, I, the people would say, my friends would say, you know, I would meet people in college, you know, my family, we have a home uh, in the mountains of Colorado, or we have a home in the Caribbean, or we vacation in Europe. I said, well, you know, my senior class we went to Ocean City <laughs> my senior year. And actually, my mother didn't let me go, but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> and I'm still pissed about that. <laughs> so black ink was fine. Blue ink meant that there was some burden she was dealing with, whether it was a financial issue. And we all know about difficult financial times and, and these times that we all live in now, that we, the, choices, the tough choices we all must make in our lives. Uh, well, my mother dealt with those issues back in the 70s and, and 80s when we were, in, we were in college. And so if the letter came in blue, that meant that she was, there was some burden that she wanted to share because she shared the good news and the bad news with us, her children. But if the letter arrived in red ink, oh, my Lord, it was clear that you were in for a verbal beatdown when you read that letter. So my freshman year in college and talking about struggles, struggles in grade school, struggles in high school, still struggles when I got to college. Uh, my freshman year in college, I was on academic probation. I was uh, midterm away from flunking out of college. And I'd become discouraged because there were people at my university who weren't like the good folk from East Baltimore. They weren't encouraging. Uh, people of my race, people of a different race, but folk mostly of a different world. And one professor told me, uh, he said, i never forget this quote. He said, Mr. Pitts, you are not Ohio Wesleyan University material. You are wasting my time and the government's money, whatever that, whatever that was supposed to mean. So I was raised to respect authority uh, because I knew when men like Coach Mack and Coach Patry, when they spoke, you listened. So when this man, this, this adult, told me I shouldn't be there, I thought, okay, I shouldn't be there. So I, I thought about dropping out of college. So I would give hints to Mama. You know, when we would talk on the phone every two weeks, I would sort of suggest, or like siblings do, I would sort of tell my brother a bit so he could tell Mama something and my sister another part so she could begin to get into her mind the possibility that I might, not be, I might be coming home. So when Mama finally, one of the great things about my family, I have to admit about my, my family, we are hard-working folk, but we can be kind of slow in, in, in my house. I mean, we don't necessarily get things right away. But when we get them, it's God. So when Mama finally got a sense that I was thinking about quitting college, 
Now, again, this is a loving, nurturing woman who has prayed with me, prayed for me. Well, in this particular letter, she wasn't in the praying mood. So the letter arrives uh, my freshman year in college uh, from my mother. It was in red ink. And, and I apologize early on for some of the children in the room for some of the language in, in the letter. But this is, this, is the, this is the clarity by which my mother raised her kids. And I think there's, there is a teachable moment here for all parents, uh, for me as a parent, the clarity in which it takes to raise a child in these times. A letter from home to her son struggling in college, looking for an encouraging word. <laughs> Dear Mr. Braindead, <laughs> have you lost your fucking mind? You went to Ohio Wesleyan with the express goal of graduating, going on to live your dreams and God's purpose for your life. At the first sign of trouble, you want to give up. Fine. Bring your ass back to Baltimore <laughs> and get a job. Maybe if you think you're up to it, you can enroll in college later. There are plenty of places in the city for dummies. Yep. Come home with your tail between your legs and get some half-assed job and spend the rest of your life crying about what you could have been. Maybe all you're cut out to be is an underachiever. Maybe I was wrong about you. Maybe you have worked as hard as you can as you claim and your best isn't good enough. Is that what you think? Here's what I know. You are a gift from God. The Lord I serve does not make mistakes. You did not get to Ohio Wesleyan because you were so smart or worked so hard. You got there because of prayer and faith and God's grace. Yes, you worked hard in high school, but you only did part of the work. Every time you took one step, God took two. Is college harder than high school? It better be as much as it costs. <laughs> so what's that mean for you? Work harder than you think you are even capable of working? Pray longer than you've ever prayed. That's what I'm doing. That is what we always do. What has your grandmother told you? You can't climb that mountain without some rough spots. Maybe you're in a cave on the other side of your mountain. Don't get scared or lazy. Don't just cry. Figure out what God is teaching you. Then get your ass back on that mountain <laughs> and keep pulling and looking forward. Son, you know Mama loves you. I believe in you. I pray for you. I know you better than you know yourself, and I know a God who is able. You're not coming home. You're not going to give up. You're not going to fail. You're going to endure. Love, Mama. So the fact that Several hours ago today, someone uh, didn't, wasn't pleased with my work. I was okay with that. Because <laughs> I had heard far worse than what he had to say. Uh, just one or two more questions, and then I know the hour is getting late. Yes, sir. When I hear you're 12 years old, illiterate, can't really read very well, now 60 minutes. What drew you to your current profession? What was that moment, if there was one? Sure. And you said, that's what I want to do. I remember, actually, the, uh, and thank you for the question, sir. Um, I was raised to believe that there are no stumbling blocks in life, only stepping stones, and that all things happen for a reason. 
I say in the book, I tell a story about my mother, that my mother's never been big on saying I'm sorry. Not a word she uses very often. Part of her reasoning, I think, was the belief that everything happens for a reason and that understanding may come by and by. But I was raised to be an optimist. My brother is optimistic. My sister is optimistic. We are an optimistic family. And so I was raised to believe that every difficult moment was meant to teach me something. So when I finally learned to embrace words, I told the story earlier uh, this evening. The first time I came to the Pratt Library with my sister and my brother, I was scared to death. This was a dangerous place for me for a kid who couldn't read. But I remember coming back years later able to read, and this place was like heaven. So as a child, while most kids now were worrying about who's going to be their girlfriend or their boyfriend, by the way, my high school sweetheart is here, Kim Taylor. Kim, are you here? And I explained to the crowd earlier, my wife is here also. <laughs> they met earlier. It's all good. So I learned to embrace words and know the power of words. That for a kid from East Baltimore who couldn't dare to venture many places beyond East Baltimore, though a coach would take seniors to the block for a couple of years when we were in the curl, um, I got to see the world through words. When I learned to, to uh, manage my issue with stuttering, which didn't occur until college, and I learned the value of being able to speak eloquently. I grew up in New Shiloh Baptist Church in, uh, in West Baltimore, and Reverend Harold A. Carter uh, was my pastor. And so I, I knew as a child the beauty of words and the beauty and power of language. So once I figured out those two things in my time, I don't, didn't learn at the same pace others did, but when I learned those things in my time, or should I say in God's time for me, I thought, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to do. One of my, the, here's one of the secrets to being a good journalist, and I work desperately to, to be the best journalist I can be. And someone argued to make it to 60 minutes, you've got to be pretty good, so I will, I'll accept that. Um, oftentimes, as a journalist, it's your job to tell the big story by telling a small story. It's my job as a journalist, whether it is in Bande Aceh, Indonesia, or whether it is in Kabul, Afghanistan, to go and tell the big story by telling the small story. Go into a room like this and find the person without voice and give them a voice. Find the person who knows struggle. One of the things I've discovered in my professional life, whether it is North Avenue or Northern Afghanistan, when a baby cries, it sounds the same. So I know because of my struggles, I know because of my mother's struggles. I know what struggle looks like. So when I go out on my job now as a journalist, because I have that life experience, I can go and I can find that person without a voice and give them voice. So that's, in many ways, why I became a journalist. Uh, to, I believe in the old adage of putting truth to power, afflict the comfortable and, and comfort the afflicted. We fail at that more times than not as journalists, but that's still my goal. Uh, that's why I got into the business, and that's why I stay in. A few more questions. Yes, ma'am. Um, I teach first grade in East Baltimore, and I have always wanted to know, like, what is your advice to the parents who are trying to get their kids to school? Because I only get my kids for 10 months. Yeah. How do I keep that message going? Sure. Six minutes is a good place, I'm here to tell you. <laughs> Pay good, nice office, I, I'm good. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, I, I mean, and part of the reason why I wrote the book is to encourage people like you. 
uh, who I know oftentimes you feel burdened by your responsibility to lift young people. And you may in moments feel overwhelmed by that for the teachers in the room. But I'm here to say that I am where I am because Sister Clarice planted a seed. Coach Mack planted a seed. Father Bart planted a seed. Coach Patry cussed and planted a seed. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Dombrowski, my friend Joe's parents, planted a seed. One of my buddies in the back, Bud. What's up, brother? Are you back? Bud. For the record, now, I know that most Baltimoreans think that Cal Ripken is the all-time best baseball player in Baltimore. But I'm here to tell you, no one could hit an Indian rubber ball farther than Bud. <laughs> Good to see you, Bud. Um, so everybody, so many people planted a seed in me. And it seems to me if, you, if we plant the right seeds, another good person will come along and add water. Add, what's that stuff you put in plants, honey? Fertilite. No, the name. What's the thing? The green stuff? Miracle Grow. Miracle Grow? Someone else would come along and put Miracle Grow on them. So I would say, do what you do. Do that as best you can. And believe that when it's over, that you can look back and say, yeah, I helped that child. I, so I, so I, I hope that when, when people like Coach and some of the other, Andre, a longtime friend of our family who's in the room, an uh, older guy, he's, a bit, he's about my sister's age. He was like our older brother. Andre went to the same school that Coach Patriot and my mother went to at times when he had to use certain language. But Andre, who now works for the court system in Baltimore, he planted seeds. And so it took all those wonderful people to do what it is that they do. I think it was Dr. King who said in one of his speeches, if you are a street sweeper, be the best sweet sweeper you can be. Um, so I would think the fact that you have committed your life to helping young people, that you show up every day, and your optimistic spirit, there is someone in your room who you give hope to. I remember when I was in the midst of my struggles with literacy, and I was with Sister Clarice only six, eight hours a day, sometimes nine when I had to stay after for some reason. Um, she would plant a seed, and, and just her kindness, uh, I still remember. I don't remember a thing I learned in third grade. But I remember her, her, her kind spirit. Uh, I remember her gentleness. Uh, and so I think that matters, you know? So I think the time in which you have, a, a side story, there's a colleague of mine, her name is Monica Kaufman. She's an anchor in Atlanta. She is the Vic Carter. Well, she ain't quite that big, but she is a big deal in Atlanta. And so one time a young uh, person, a college kid, an intern, was telling Monica about, you know what? You're the main anchor here, and they don't give you the lead story enough. They give it to the other guy, and you're the star of this show. And Monica said, wise words that I try and, and, and keep in my mind today. She says, baby, when that red light is on me, I own it. When it's not, I don't worry about it. So I would think the powerful work you do as a teacher, uh, if you do that as best you can, you don't know the lives you will touch and the seeds you will plant. They may not reconnect until they get to high school, get to work, but it does matter. I mean, I am a witness of all the wonderful people in this room who planted seeds in me at different points. And they may have thought, I'm sure when Father Bart was talking to me and looking at his watch thinking, when is this boy going to go home? Uh, he was planting a seed in my spirit. Uh, and that, that, that seed still lives. So, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. And it, and it makes a difference. Yes, ma'am. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Byron's cousin. Hey, cousin. I just want to say, 
I just want to say, first of all, Byron, we family that are here that know you, we're so very proud Thank of you. Thank you. Um, I follow you as much as I can. Um, I'm a police officer in Baltimore City for 23 years, but I always make sure I try to see what you're doing. I know what's going on here, but I wanna, I'm worried about you. Uh-huh. Is there a story or something that you've done, a place you've gone to that you're like, it left an impact? I think the most that most of the stories that you've done that left an impact on me is uh, the Timothy McVeigh mm. execution and watching you in Afghanistan as well during 9-11, because I know what I was doing yeah. at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's, what's the story sure. that you've done that yeah. brought out? Yeah, thank you. There have been a couple. One I can think of in talking about 9-11, September 11, 2001. You know, when you're as a police officer, when you're in your work mode as a teacher, you're so focused on doing your job, you don't allow the things outside your job to impact you. So I was really focused about what I was doing. I was there when the towers fell, ran like everybody else, reported as best I could. Uh, we won a national Emmy for our work that day. But I, but I was okay. I was, I was grounded. I was, I was doing my job. I was being a reporter. Until late that day, I got a phone call from my brother. Now, my brother is also one of my original role models. Tough man. Tough man. Good man. He's been fighting my battles forever. In fact, Mac is the guy, I tell a story in the book about how when I was, I, I, I was at a difficult moment professionally, and I would call my mother and we'd talk, we'd pray, she'd cuss, we'd pray. <laughs> I'd call my sister, we'd talk, we'd pray, she'd cuss, we'd pray. I called my brother, we'd talk, he'd cuss, we'd pray. And then he would offer to drive to where I was and kick the ass of the, of the boss <laughs> who was giving me a hard time. So when I was on 9-11, hectic day, and we lost nearly 3,000 Americans, 3,000 innocent people that day. But I, was, I, was, I had my game face on. It wasn't until late in the day, and I got a phone call. I you know, checked on my wife, and I knew where people were, and they knew where I was. I got a call from my brother. My brother's a tough man. And I says, hello? And he says, what the hell are you doing? Are, are you okay? And I could hear the concern and I could even hear him choking back tears. And that, that touched me. That sort of reminded me that while I was working, it was still a human moment. Uh, and, and it was about families as much as it was about numbers and terrorism. So certainly that was a moment. I'll tell one other story. Um, when I was in Afghanistan, my least favorite neighborhood in the world, um, there are some tough neighborhoods in Baltimore, but they don't compare to Afghanistan. So I was in Afghanistan for the first time a few months after 9-11, and we were on a road uh, in northern Afghanistan trying to get to our next location to sleep. And there are some basic rules of the road in Afghanistan. Don't eat, don't eat the meat, don't drink the water, don't look at the women, and don't drive after dark. Well, we pretty much broke three of those four rules that, that day. We're driving along, we get lost, and I'm sitting next to, uh, you know, there the cars are like they are in Europe. The, the driver's seat is on the right side. So our driver is a 16-year-old Afghan boy. We're driving along. We're paying him $50 a day. He's a bright kid. So we're driving along, and then he stops the car. And he says, through the interpreter, why are we stopping? He says, well, he explains that we're in a minefield. At that time, there were 70,000 landmines in, in northern Afghanistan left there by the Soviets, and that we had wandered unintentionally in one of those minefields. And so he said, through the interpreter, someone has to get out of the car to get us out of the minefield. Now, I don't know much about minefields, 
But you see, I'm from East Baltimore. And my mom ain't raised no fools. So I knew it wasn't me. So someone goes, leaves it out of the minefield. We go a little further. And then there's a, there's a compound off in the distance, about two miles away, but in the desert, it looks much closer. And we look and we realize that these men jump into a vehicle and come towards us. And the guy, the driver again stops the car and says, we're in trouble, that that's a Taliban compound. And at that point, there's a $50,000 bounty for Westerners. And the average Afghan family makes about $1,500 a year. So $50,000, you know, that's, that's serious money. So I, I could see that our young driver was doing some calculation in his head about that $50,000 because he got three Americans in the car. So he stops and he says, through the interpreter, he says, I want to renegotiate my deal. I want more money. I'm like, okay. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm representing CBS News. I said, well, please explain to him that we have a contract and we have to abide by the contract and let's get going. The interpreter told him, young boy, like, nah, he wasn't buying it. It's okay. I said, well, tell him that um, we are both honorable men. I'm an honorable man. I'm certain he's an honorable man. And as honorable men, we can negotiate later. And he has my word. He will get a fair price. So the interpreter says, honorable. There's not a good word in our language for honorable. It's okay. So I said, well, I tried, you know, being a professional. I tried being a man of faith. I said, well, let me try a little East Baltimore on this guy. I said, God damn it, tell him he better get his ass moving right now. Suddenly, the language barrier was gone. He put the car in drive. So, see, there are great things you can learn growing up in Baltimore. But later, later that night, we, were, uh, we, were sort of, we thought we were sort of cornered by these Taliban men who were following us. And I don't uh, mind saying I was frightened. It wasn't the first time in my life I've been frightened. I cried. It wasn't the first time in my life I cried. But I thought at that moment I might die that evening. I might not see my family again. I got angry for a moment because I always promised my family I'll be careful. I won't do anything stupid. And so I knew that the disappointment and hurt they would have uh, if anything happened to me. I was scared for my colleagues, and so I closed my eyes to pray. And I was so scared I couldn't think of a single prayer. I couldn't think of any scripture. Sorry, Father. I mean, I, I, I tried, but I couldn't think of anything all those years in school. And so finally I, I took both hands and pushed my hands up and looked out the window to help navigate where we are and turn here. Because, you know, when you're driving in the desert, it was a high-speed chase in the desert. And with the sand, we were going about four miles an hour. And so part of it said, can we just get out of the car and run? Is that a better? <laughs> so anyway, so I pushed my head up, and I look, and I realize it's late at night, and we're in a valley, and you can see the stars. In a different situation, it would have been the most romantic night of my life. And I looked, and at that moment, it came to me, the 23rd Psalm through the valley and shadow of death. And that moment I realized that if it's God's will that I die, it's going to happen. But if it's God's will that I live, I'm going to be all right. Now I'm still a little nervous now. I mean, I, you know, my mother used to say, she says, sometimes I'm talking to God, looking at my watch, and he's looking at his calendar. Uh, I certainly felt that that night. But I've often said that for me that was a significant moment professionally. But at that moment I realized... Uh, I said in the book that I've had moments where I've been frightened since then, gunfire and explosion in Baghdad. Um, but I've never been afraid uh, because I know I'm clear now about who I am and whose I am. So, yeah, that was a turning point in my life.
You know, my, my mother raised her kids with a very simple philosophy, and we have, we've taken different career paths. But I think all of us are respected in our given jobs, and, and we are, uh, uh, people know that we work hard. My mother raised her children with a simple philosophy, that if you work hard and pray hard and treat people right, good things will happen. So I always tell young people that for certain, to, 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 to be a good and decent person. Because it's amazing, you know how when you're young, when you're 19, 20 years old, you think you know everything. But it's amazing how far in this life words like thank you and please, yes ma'am, yes sir, will take you. And that things that you don't know, someone will plant that seed, give that information. I also tell people, and I think this applies certainly to, to young people and to all of us, part of the reason why I think I, I am where I am now at 60 Minutes, not because I'm lucky, because their luck and Clarice Pitts and her kids have never shared the same space very often, but I've been blessed. And one of the things that came out of struggle to the gentleman's earlier question about why I became a journalist, I learned early on that I'm a visual learner. I have to see things before they happen. I talk in the book about how long before I got to 60 Minutes, when I first came to CBS News as a young reporter, they said, so what's your plan? So I, they were talking about, like, where are you going to live? Where gonna, what kind of car are you going to bring up here? I thought they meant what my plan was. I said, well, the plan is I'm going to work at 60 Minutes. And they laughed, said, son, we're not interviewing from that job today. That's not why you're here. I said, well, that's why I'm here. Uh, but I was raised being a visual learner to visualize what I want. So I would walk around the halls of 60 Minutes, Mike Wallace, Morley Safer. I'd walk past their office, go sit in their chair if they weren't around. <laughs> so, I could, so I could visualize, so I could see it. So I encourage young people to, to see your, your dream. The pastor of my church, uh, Reverend Carter, he had a great saying. He would say, Reach for the stars and you'll follow the moon. Uh, I've interpreted that to mean that to dream big but plan small. Have a very detailed plan. I always tell young people especially. It seems to me that you should be able to say tonight what it is you will be doing 20 years from now. I believe in that. In my church tradition, it's called say it, claim it. And I believe in that. But the power of visualizing where you want to go. Look, if you're born and raised in Baltimore, that tells me a couple of things that you know the value of hard work, that you know on some levels, in some ways, either you've experienced or you've seen tough times. You also know the value of family. So it seems to me wherever you go to college to matriculate, you have all the, you, you have the core of what you need to be successful. But success, I am clear, has little to do with talent. Let me say that again. Success has little to do with talent. It's about hard work, I think. It's about having a dream and a vision. Uh, a friend of mine once said that either you will decide for yourself what you want to do or someone will decide for you. And you can decide for yourself. So I tell people, have, write it down on paper. My mother was big in writing letters, as you know, and, and, and encouraging her kids to write things down. So put on paper tonight what it is you're going to be doing when you grow up. And don't be vague. Be specific. Everything has a name. I always tell, 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 tell our children, you know, when they're growing up, when they go out and they're, they're meeting young people and hopefully in church, but, but maybe in a nightclub. I say, when you're on the dance floor, and I won't dance because I can't dance, uh, you're on the dance floor and you're talking to a young person, you say, so what do you do? If they can't say what they do in a sentence, they ain't doing anything. You can't, like, for instance, I ask young people, uh, where do you live, dear? Yes, ma'am, where do you live? No, give me, give me your address. Yes, ma'am, address. Ma'am? Okay. Well, the only way you're going to get from here tonight 
to home is because you have a specific address to go to. You're going to get from here to there because you have a path you're going to go. If the street's blocked off, you may go an alternate right, but you have a path to follow. I think career is the same way. The only way you get to where you want to go is if you know where you want to go. Uh, I was clear about When I was 18 years old, a freshman in college, I claimed it. I said I will work for 60 minutes someday. That was my dream. You know, when Kim Taylor and I would talk about our dreams as young people, I would talk about my dream of wanting to work for 60 minutes. And some people laughed, and folk may laugh at you. But you know what? Ain't nobody laughing now. Thank you. Yes, sir. Should we wrap up? Oh, yes, yes. Sir? Oh, no graduate school. Why did I go to Ohio Wesleyan? Well, for a couple, the short answer is because Clarice said you're going to college at Ohio Wesleyan. That's the short answer. Uh, but, you know, interesting thing about my mother and, and the wisdom of, of great parenting. My mother knew my world in uh, East Baltimore. One of the reasons why she sacrificed to send me to Archbishop Curley, and some people criticized her for making that choice. Some relatives, some coworkers criticized her. Why send him to that school? Why send him to school those white people, some people said. And my mother said, I want my son to be able to function in the world. And so he needs to understand a variety of people. He needs to know one of her favorite lines, that every co- everyone his color isn't his kind that he needs to understand that. So part of her choice in picking Ohio Wesleyan, now my sister uh, went to Savannah State, a historically black college. My brother went to Morgan State. My mother got her degree from Morgan State. So there was no disrespect intended at all to any of those great institutions. But mama, knowing her child and what I needed, she wanted me to be in a diverse environment where I could meet people from different parts of the world, uh, different economic backgrounds, so I could be well prepared to tackle the world. Uh, she wanted me to go away to school. My brother and sister will tell you, I am a bona fide mama's boy. I was afraid of moths till about three days ago. <laughs> and flies. And Lord, don't even say snakes. So my mother knew that as much as she loved me, that I needed to go away from home. Not to escape East Baltimore, but to take East Baltimore with me and go someplace else. So that's why, that's why we chose Ohio Wesleyan, so I could be the person that she dreamt that I could be, that I could be the person that so many people in this room invested in. I will take one more question and be respectful of time. Yes, ma'am. Sure. Can you hear a question like how do I, as, as, a, as a black journalist, manage the perceived coverage of, of President Obama? Right. Uh, uh, the suggestion of the, the, the racism aimed at our president. Here, here's my answer, and I'll answer as best I can. One of the great things about growing up in Baltimore, in my experience, about the issues of race, and my, my travels as a journalist now for 27 years, I am clear that there are all kinds of isms in this world, and racism is just one of those. Uh, I remember my freshman year, my sophomore year at Curley, and we were playing Carver. It was an away game. And there were some young brothers on the other team who didn't like the fact there was a brown person playing for Archbishop Curley. And I, and I was getting no play time with that coach. He didn't play me at all that year. <laughs> Come on, man. None. My mother came to every single game. 
So we're, so we're playing against Carver, and we walk off the field, and some people yell some choice words at me. Only, only brown spot wearing Archbishop curly colors. And when they went to some guys in the stands came after me, a guy named Patrick Butler, who I didn't get along well with at, at Curly, came to my defense. My, my friend Joe Stombrowski, I can't ever look at Joe because Joe and I both are mama's boys and we're both criers. So I can't talk about Joe <laughs> and look at Joe. But I tell a story about Joe, uh, our freshman year at Curly. We were walking home. Joe and I were freshmen at Curly together, didn't know each other. And at Curly, and you were a freshman, you got to carry all your books to class, right? You got to carry every book home. If you had 18 books, you had to put 18 books in your book bag and drag them home. You may not have opened them when you got there, but you had to take them home. So Joe and I would walk back and forth down Sinclair Lane to go to Archbishop Curling. I didn't know Joe, and Joe didn't know me. He knew that I was a freshman. I knew that he was a freshman. And the last thing you wanted to do was to associate with a freshman. So Joe and I were walking, walking home one day, and we're walking through the parking lot, and some seniors at Curling, less because of any, I think, malicious attitude, but based on life experience, based on a level of ignorance perhaps, based on trying to find an easy target, uh, turned to me and, and they stopped me as I'm walking across the parking lot. And this is no disrespect to my high school, which I love. And many of my brothers from Curly are in this room, and I'm so glad that they're here. So one of, the, one of the guys says, you know what? I hate niggas. And the only thing I hate niggas are nigger lovers. And he pointed at Joe. I didn't know Joe. Joe didn't know me. The expression on Joe's face is, what the hell are they? What? <laughs> so Joe and I together took off running, hard as we could. I mean, we're talking that, that ugly nose running kind of running. So Joe and I finally make it down by the bridge, uh, down from Curly. And so finally we stop and, and, and we go to greet each other finally. And I say, hey, I'm Byron Pitch from St. Catharines. And Joe had gone to another uh, a Catholic school in Baltimore. And so I, I told Joe, because we had to push these guys off. Uh, as we're talking, some other guys run up on us, men who, young boys who look like me. And they said, the only thing I hate more <laughs> than a cracker is an Oreo who thinks he's a cracker. <laughs> so Joe and I fought like warriors to get these, to fend these guys off of us. Fists are flying. They end up, they get the best of us that day, and they end up throwing us down by, by the creek, down not too far down from Curly. Our clothes are wet, our books are wet. Joe knows his parents are going to whoop his butt. I know my mama's going to whoop my, because they don't want to hear what happened. They want to know why this books we paid money for are wet. So Joe, so Joe stood up and said, we, we get up, and Joe says, I, I say to Joe first, I said, Joe, you know, you fight pretty good for a white boy, based on what I knew at that time. And he says, yeah, but you didn't float like a butterfly or sting like a bee. <laughs> so that, 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 er, that early experience with race taught me valuable lessons about race. In talking to, to Joe's parents, uh, you know, the, the, the children of immigrants, and hearing them talk about the kinds of discrimination their parents faced in foreign lands. It taught me as a child that there are all kinds of isms in discrimination. And so certainly I am proud of who I am. I am many things. I am an African-American man, proud of it. I am Baptist, proud of it. I am Clarice Pitts' youngest boy, proud of it. So I, I, I look at those things and I think, okay, there's just people who, I'll, I'll say this, probably isn't going to answer your question, but I am a journalist. 
My job is not to offer my opinion. My job is to seek truth and to report truth. Uh, my fundamental belief in talking about 9-11, that our country changed fundamentally that day. And I'm mindful that as a journalist, that perhaps if people like me had done their job more thoroughly and were less concerned about Paris Hilton or less concerned about ratings and getting the right wing excited or the left wing excited, if we in the media simply did our jobs, planted the seeds that we have to plant and to tell the truth, that perhaps we as journalists would have said something about terrorism in the world, would have warned people on that plane that danger was coming. So when I hear that kind of criticism uh, of President Obama and other issues, I, I, I seek not to make a judgment about it. Uh, I seek to try and interpret it to see where there is some truth, uh, where, where, there, where there may be uh, things that aren't factual. But, but my job as a journalist is to seek truth. And I'll say one final thing as, as I close. Um, I hear that language aimed at our president. And it seems to me, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, um, that he is still the leader of our country, just as those who were for or against President George W. Bush. He was the leader of our country. Uh, America, I've been many places. In America, we have all kinds of warts. But I am a witness that America is still the greatest country on earth. Only in America, only in America, could a kid from East Baltimore who couldn't read until he was 12, stuttered until he was 20, end up on 60 Minutes. Uh, thank you. Thank you. So as I, as, I, as I close, I would like to thank you all so very much for, for giving up so much of your time this evening. I hope I have a chance to, to hug next and to talk to people. Uh, I want to say thank you to everyone uh, for coming out. Thank you to the educators in the room. I would encourage you, if I may ask one thing of you, and, and, and thank you for indulging me this moment. I ask you, shamelessly, as someone who just wrote a book, to buy the book, certainly. But I also would ask you, because of you know, our, our commitment to literacy and the Penny a Book Club, but I also would ask you to consider spreading the word about this book. Because I th one of the things we love about the book, Step Out of Nothing, is that this isn't a book about a superstar. This isn't about a guy who knows superstars. This is a book about a guy from a working class neighborhood surrounded by regular folk who at different moments stepped out of nothing to help him. I want this book to encourage people to encourage that young lady over there, to encourage this young man here, that all things are possible if you believe. So I'd ask you, if you would, I certainly want you to buy the book. Yes, I do. And I'll happily autograph. But I'd ask you, if you'd be so kind, to spread the word to your friends and to your family, to your students, to their parents, and ask them to support the book. Because, you know, I'm not, I'm not one of those guys who write, you know, the second I put my name down, it becomes a bestseller. My book only becomes a bestseller if people like me, uh, who know my story, who see their story and my story, spread the word. I believe, I've claimed it. I've claimed already that this book will be a bestseller. Now, trust me. Thank you. We are a long way from there right now. Uh, but I, I'm believing that good folks like you will read the book, uh, will embrace it, and share it with others. Thank you so much, Baltimore. It's good to be home. <laughs>